Okay, so if you've been around for a couple of weeks here, you know that we've been talking about uh, what's at the center, what's energizing and animating us together as a community, what we're trying to understand and surrender to. And there's a word for that uh, that we've been unpacking. It's a word that you might have some baggage with, but the word is gospel or good news or, or good word. Uh, it, it's like at the center of the things that Jesus is talking about and doing. It has all these roots that go back in the scriptures and that get pulled in from the world around it. Uh, it has to do with a, a word about God who is ready to help people find their way home when they find themselves far away from where they want to be or who they want to be. So it's good news in that regard, right? And it's a word uh, for a world that's breaking and wondering how it will be put back together, like what will hold it together, what kind of way will bring the kind of peace that we long for in the world. It's a word for all of that. And uh, if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, this is, I think, the first time I've ever like, made a pitch to go listen to the podcast. But it's um, mostly just so that you can track with us as we move toward baptism. Because if you're in this community and you've been wondering what that means for us as we move toward it in a couple of weeks, these, uh, these words are really important to help us understand that. So you can go to the podcast and listen to the last couple of weeks. But today we're going to sort of pick up the thread. Uh, instead of talking about uh, big words and big ideas, we're going to talk about a person in Scripture, uh, a character that I, I really relate with. Uh, so we'll take you into it, but let me explain why I relate to this guy first. So uh, the job that I came from before Southland City Church, uh, big church, big staff, and uh, about twice a year we would bring in a strategy consultant who would lead us through a two or three day process, like eight hours a day with some of our staff leaders in a room together, trying to sort of figure out where we are and where we're going and how we're gonna get there. So this is just kind of like classic like strategic operational planning stuff, right? So we get into this room and it's uh, uh, three sides of eight foot tables, like two eight foot tables on the side, set up as three sides of a square. And then you've got this open place at the front and there'd be like 10 or 20 of us in there. Now, I don't know about you, but I have these weird uh, sort of compulsions when I walk into a room about where I sit. Do any of you have this? Like, like I'm very like weirded out about like, like who's behind me or what's around me, like especially the more people that are in the room or if it's a meeting, it really matters to me. I don't like having anybody behind me. That freaks me out. I'm not like worried about an ambush. I just, I'm just worried about like not being able to read all the body language in the room. I like to kind of map all the energy in the room, sense what's going on there. So, so I always have that going on in my head. So my first time that I walk into this meeting, and by the way, we did these meetings for like years while I was there. I mean, like, I think I was in meetings like this with this consultant and our team for maybe like six or seven years or something like that. So the first time that we do it, though, I walk into this new setup, and I decide uh, I'm going to sit here, basically. So I've got all of the staff uh, leaders to my right, and I've got the consultant right here in front of me, and I feel like I can kind of map the room the way that I want to and pay attention to the things that I want to. So I just make a beeline for that seat. I was proud of myself. I got to the meeting early so I could stake out my turf, you know what I mean? Uh, which is a big deal for me when the meeting starts at like 9 a.m., um, you know, so ungodly early. Um, so there I am in my seat, and, and Doug, the consultant, who's still a dear friend of mine, Doug, who I, I'm meeting for the first time in these meetings, he sort of like picks up on this and he, he rolls with it and he enlists me as the guy to sort of spell check all the charts that he's filling in as we fill out all these constructs and paper all of the walls in the room with these things that we're designing together in our planning, right? So we kind of like build this sort of relationship together and I'm there at that spot and I feel valued in that spot and Doug sort of says, yeah, I like having you there. But after like a couple of years of this thing, I start thinking, okay, maybe I should like surrender this turf to somebody else that might want to sit there. Maybe they want to have this special relationship with Doug. So I walk into a meeting and I pick a seat like farther down the, the row of chairs there. And as I'm getting in my seat, Doug calls me out and says, oh no, I need my spell checker right here. 
So I feel kind of affirmed and kind of excited that I matter to Doug in the meeting, you know, and so I, I come back to my seat. So for years, I'm right here in this seat, and I'm there to help Doug and sort of help the meeting be at its best, right? Well, then after like five or six years of our church doing this consulting at the leadership level, we decided it would be great to take this sort of proprietary strategic planning process that our consultant leads our leadership in and train our staff to facilitate it the way that Doug facilitates it so that the departments that we lead can also go through the same kind of process. So we have training days set up and Doug's gonna come in and instead of leading a strat up, he's gonna teach us how to lead a strat up and we get this big glossy workbook spiral bound that's gonna take us through it and we have it the day beforehand. So I'm at home the night before getting ready and I'm flipping through the pages and there's a, there's a bold heading on one of the pages and it says, how to control the meeting. And then it describes this seat. It says the seat that's closest to you on your right, there will probably be someone on the team who's a little unruly, who needs to be disempowered. Put him in this seat. <laughs> I'm not making this up. It's like I text Doug and I was like, Doug, I thought we had something special, man. The whole time, you were just trying to keep me out of the power in the room, you know? Doug tells me, no, no, well, kind of. But also, you're my buddy and I like having you there, you know? I say this because I think that experience of being sort of the unruly one that the leader needs to keep close by your side and for a moment you think it's because you're special and then it finds out you're just because you're a problem. Like, this is the experience of Peter in the Gospels, okay? So hang with me. Uh, I want to take you into this a little bit. Peter's one of the followers of Jesus who's there again and again hearing this good news promise. He's hearing Jesus talk about the activity of God in the world in a way that can lead people far away from home back to home and a way that can heal people. He's talking about the activity of God in the world in a way that can put things back together when they are breaking, um, when, when politics and powers are ripping the world apart, where people are hurting in that breaking. He's talking about all this, and Peter's there for it. He gets to see, like, the strength of it. He gets insight on it. He's there, like, early on, Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. And uh, in response to this, he gets to see Jesus heal his mother-in-law, to which he responded, thanks, I think. I've tried that mother-in-law joke three times. It didn't work... <laughs> Anytime, it's fine. Um, whatever, I don't care. Uh, so, so, so he's there for that experience. There's this thing that we call the transfiguration in the scriptures, which is this mountaintop moment with Jesus where Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses, two of the most important figures in Israel's spiritual history. He gets to be there for that. Peter's the guy when, when the disciples of Jesus are out in a boat without Jesus and they see Jesus walking on the water, Peter's the guy who has the guts to say, I want to get out there with you. So he steps out of the boat onto the water and for just a moment has this incredible experience of walking on water with Jesus. Peter's one of the few disciples who gets invited into Jesus' most vulnerable moments uh, toward the end of his time on earth on the night that he knows he's going to be arrested, um, brought into a fake trial, tortured, abused, mocked, betrayed, and crucified. He's there in the garden with Jesus as Jesus prays some of his most vulnerable and intimate prayers. It's like Peter's right there, you know? He's right there for all of this action. And then later, uh, after, after Jesus uh, sort of goes to be with the Father and then we see the church awakening in the world, it's Peter who is leading the church. It's Peter who preaches the first gospel good news sermon in the book of Acts. It's Peter who is articulating this good news for all kinds of other people. And I suspect part of it's because he got to be there with a front row seat as Jesus was articulating and, and demonstrating the reality of that good news. So he's got all this going on but he also, he just like has staggering failure. I mean like aggressive failure. <laughs> like like mind-blowingly uh, painful failure in the Gospels. And I want to take you to a couple of these moments. Because as we talk about good news, as we talk about 
the, the possibility that at the center of the universe, at the deepest reality of, of the universe, um, is a God who is compelled toward our healing, toward our hope, a God who is compelled toward holding the world together in peace, not through coercion or through violence, but in peace. As we talk about the possibility that that's the deepest reality of our world, that that's the good news here, the good word, um, it's possible that, that you do what I think a lot of us do, which is that you start deciding that, that you're on the outside of that looking in, that there's something about you, something about your past or your present or patterns of difficulty in your life that have made you ineligible for that. And that's why I want to look at Peter and some of these failures. So uh, the first one, let me take you. This is uh, to chapter 18 in John's gospel. It'll be on the screen. This is on that night with Jesus when he knows that he's about to be uh, dragged away to his crucifixion. And this is the moment of his arrest. And um, well, we'll, just, we'll just read this and then we'll kind of work it out together. So uh, Jesus is uh, here being confronted by these guards that are going to take him away. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So a couple of interesting things about this. I mean, I, I picture Peter. He's like, he's for three years been walking with Jesus and, and gotten the impression that something like never before is happening with Jesus. That something is breaking into the world, being made available to the human race through Jesus that we've never seen before. He's seen uh, the beauty of it, the compelling power of it. He's, he seems to be sort of giving his life to it. And then in this moment, what's staggering to me, first of all, is how directly contrary this is to what Peter should have already known. So, for example, Peter would have been there when Jesus taught the way that he did in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, like we looked at last week. And one of the things that Jesus makes really, really clear in his teachings is that violence is, is completely incapable of, of serving this movement of the kingdom. Like, you can't get this good news, this kingdom, through violence. It just doesn't work that way. It's completely contrary to it. I mean, this, this isn't just like a little addendum in Jesus' life and ministry. It's, it's a core theme for Jesus as he teaches the way of this kingdom. So, I mean, this is like staggering in its contrariness. Like, you can't fail any more than this. It's not just something that doesn't work. It, it's something that's been clearly stated as counter to the whole good news thing that Jesus is talking about. But in the moment, it's like, Peter, it's like, it's like he's invested in this movement, invested in this good news, um, I imagine he's given his, his heart, his mind, his, 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 his years to it at this point, and he sees what he perceives as a threat to this good thing, right? He, he perceives this to be working against the good thing. And so I, I picture him saying, like, like, I know what'll help. Like, I know I can do something. Like, I have an idea, right? And then he grabs this sword, and he does this thing, and what he thinks in the moment was, like, knowledge. Like, I've got an idea. I have some insight how to help. Proves to be just utter ignorance, like, like tragic ignorance because it's so far opposed to the nature of this movement. And just to make it clear, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Like as if, like this thing that is happening right now is actually part of how God is bringing this into the world. It's part of how God is bringing good news into the world. So you pull out that sword and you are actively working against it. This is like staggering ignorance. And I'm not judging Peter because I've been there a million times. Like, like I sense um, something of God is in my midst. I have my hands on it a little bit, something good and true and beautiful that, that um, I think I can help. Like maybe I want to like add my weight or my energy to this. I get protective of it. I think I know what I can do. And again and again, like I get confronted with all the ways that what I think is knowledge for a second is just ignorance. It's just 
what I think is like a light bulb turning on is just darkness, you know? Um, so this is one of Peter's dark moments, but there's another one on the same night. And this is in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, Matthew's telling the same story of this night in Jesus' life after his arrest. At this point, uh, Jesus is being dragged into this trial to be beaten, to be tortured. And uh, this is verse 69 in Matthew 26. Peter's sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. She says, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath this time. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Now here too, a couple of notes. Um, Again, he was there when Jesus talked about the nature of this kingdom, how it is that this good news can be invested in. And another thing that Jesus makes very clear in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 is that like truthful speech is actually quite central. Like that might seem trivial like in the world we live in today, but truthful speech is actually quite central in the way that Jesus describes the nature of this kingdom. So there's a tragedy in in Peter's um, deceptive speech here, but uh, there's a greater tragedy I think in just the total breakdown in courage. This is like utter unfaithfulness right? And I put myself in Peter's shoes, and um, after discovering my own utter unfaithfulness, like I, just, I don't have the, the character or the courage to, to live up to what these moments require out of us, and, and then I'm Peter, and I see Jesus being dragged into that trial, and, and this is, by the way, like my best friend, and my teacher, and the one in whom I have seen all of these good things breaking forth. I'm Peter. I'm the one who, who declared earlier in the story you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the fulfillment of this entire story that we have been aching to see fulfilled for so long in our people's history. So Peter says this, and then he sees the one that he called Christ dragged into that trial and then beaten and then dragged to that cross hanging there. And he weeps. And I, like, I just, um, I can relate to this so deeply for all the moments where I discover my lack of courage, my lack of character, my utter unfaithfulness, just sort of unable to keep up with or live up to the demands of this kingdom. Like, it's as if there is um, sort of a way that this kingdom can't help but be brave and beautiful, and I can't help but be uh, cowardly sometimes. There's a way that this kingdom can't help but be peace, and sometimes I can't help but resort to violence in my words and my attitudes and my energies toward other people. And so I relate to Peter a lot. And if you're in this moment with Peter, I suspect you're thinking, um, yeah, that's it. That's the end of this movement, and it's the end of my part in this movement. It's the end of its availability to me, or it's good work in the world. And so it's interesting as we kind of follow along in Peter's story after these moments of ignorance and unfaithfulness. Um, After Jesus is murdered, the followers of Jesus are slow to catch on to the fact that three days later he's been resurrected and brought out of the grave. 
And these women who come to the grave to tend to Jesus' body, they go there and the grave is empty. Except there's a, there's a man in white in there which comes across something like an angel or a messenger. And the man talks to the women and says, Jesus isn't here anymore, but go, go get his disciples. Like, go, go let them know they're going to meet Jesus uh, out there and, and they're going to have this reunion and there's more to this story, right? But it's interesting that in that moment, the angel says, go tell his disciples and tell Peter. Go tell his disciples and tell Peter. Now, every time else in the Gospels, like, you don't need to say and Peter when you say the disciples because the disciples include Peter. It'd be like saying, go tell NSYNC and JT. Like, <laughs> everybody knows he's part of the crew, right? Until he, you know, went on to his staggering success. But I mean, like, in the 90s, right? Like, you wouldn't say, go tell NSYNC and tell JT. You would just say, go tell NSYNC. Here he says, go tell the disciples and tell Peter. And I, I just wonder if, like, through this, like, God is communicating in some sense that, like, he knows Peter is out there self-excluding. He has disqualified himself. He's made some assumptions about what this is going to mean for him for the rest of his life. He's on the outside looking in. So he says, specifically, go and include Peter. Go and re-invite Peter. Go and grab Peter and say, you're still in on this if you still want to be in on this. Another moment in the Gospels, after Jesus has been resurrected, we read that the disciples are out fishing which is to say that they've resigned themselves, that this movement is done, and they're going to go back to their old way of life. They're going to get back to the things they were doing before they were so naive as to hope in this good news, before they were so naive to actually believe in the movement that they were discovering in Jesus. And so they're out there fishing again, and, and, and Jesus goes uh, to retrieve them, to like, bring them back to himself. And there's this moment on the beach there where Jesus has a meal with his disciples, and he specifically brings Peter to his fire there on the beach. And he invites Peter into a conversation about Peter's love for him. And then Jesus uh, has these um, unexpected words for Peter. Uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is a shepherd. It's one of the metaphors that describes Jesus' relationship with the, the people who are part of this movement, with the, with the people who are sort of being entrusted inside this movement. And, and, and Jesus says to Peter, after they speak of Peter's love for him, you feed my sheep. Like he, he situates Peter like in his own role, which is an incredible sort of um, reinstatement for this guy who has every reason to think that his ignorance and unfaithfulness, I mean, at first I suspect he thinks that they might have ended the movement, <laughs> but the resurrection shows that they weren't enough to end the movement, but he might have still thought they were enough to end his participation in the movement, right? His part in this good news. And Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, you're still in on it, but like second class. Jesus doesn't say you're still in on it, but you're on probation. Jesus says, you're going to step into, into the same kind of shoes that I wear in this movement and shepherd the people of this movement. Now, um, later in the church, there are these reflections that develop on the meaning of everything going on around Jesus' death. So like uh, a guy named Paul, uh, one of these other people in this movement, in the book of Colossians, he writes, and, and they're reflecting on this mystery of the death of Christ on the cross and, and what it means and what's happening there. And we read, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, and listen closely to the language. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, which, which like seems to suggest like there's a, there's a perception that we have of our relationship to God and God's movement in the world. We've made ourselves enemies in our minds. We've, we've assumed this alienation. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Uh, there's another place where Paul writes about this in Ephesians. And, uh, and here we kind of come back to a word that we've been getting at for a little while, but we haven't 
um, really invoked. When we talk about all this ignorance and unfaithfulness, um, all these ways that we rebel against good news, all these ways that we are more invested in the breaking of the world than in the healing of the world, like, there's a word for all that this, the scripture uses, and I've, I've kind of waited till now to bring it up, only because I'm mindful of the ways it might have been used against you, or it might have been used to, like, to hurt you or like weaponized somehow, and, and that's not our understanding of this word, but it does speak uh, bravely and honestly about our ignorance and our unfaithfulness and the ways that we fall short. And the words here in uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, and then here's the word, and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So Paul has this um, sort of expansive uh, massive language for what's happening in this moment with Christ on the cross. It's, it's almost as if Paul is saying that, um, that, that you could like gather up all of the ignorance and unfaithfulness of humanity, past, present, and future, and you could show all of that like brought against God, like directed against God in God's kingdom, that you could show all of these violent energies that are breaking the world, all of these uh, things that drag us away from home, all these tendencies that take us away from who we are meant to be and what we want to be, like all of that somehow gets gathered up and it gets brought against God, against God's kingdom at that moment when that violence is directed against Jesus on the cross. And, and it's interesting, like the... The writers of the New Testament, it's, it's like there's a mystery in that moment of, of somehow how all of that gets gathered up and brought against Christ on the cross. And so in that mystery and trying to describe it, they like, they're grabbing language from everywhere. So you find language uh, from, the, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures and their spiritual past. And you find language from the marketplace. And you find language from the imperial context around the people who are describing this. It's like they're grabbing every bit of language they can get their hands on to describe this mystery at the middle of this, which is all of this violence being brought against God's kingdom. And yet somehow, because God doesn't act back, because God doesn't push back, hit back, react in kind, somehow all of that ignorance and unfaithfulness is transformed in that moment. Like somehow the love of God grabs all of that, receives it as it comes against him, and somehow rather than just throwing it back at us, it gets somehow transformed into something else so that even those of us who have been ignorant and unfaithful find it's not the end of our story. It's not a thing that will exclude us anymore. Somehow, somehow there's still a way, an invitation for us to keep coming into this movement, to keep being a part of this kingdom. So Paul uses this uh, big language, the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And sometimes Paul's big theological language helps me um, open up to the reality of this, but sometimes it helps me to remember, like when I read expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, it helps me to picture a, like a localized, embodied, flesh and blood experience of this, like Peter on the beach with his toes in the sand. I imagine his head hanging down for a moment and him being uncertain if he heard Jesus right when Jesus said, feed my sheep. Like uncertain that it could possibly be that good, that gracious, 
that inviting to a person like him. You're not excluded. You're not out of the running. You're not done. You are still being invited into this. And as we move toward the waters of baptism, it's important to say this loud and clear. The invitation of this kingdom isn't to be perfect. It's not to um, prove your way or earn your spot. Um, it's, it's not that you're like committing to a white-knuckled approach to life where now what you must offer is no mistakes ever again. Um, rather, it's a kingdom that has such enduring power and generosity that it can keep saying to you, come back in, come back in, come back in. A while ago, I was um, in town somewhere, somewhere just like a store or a restaurant, and the church I was at at the time, we were getting ready for baptism. And this woman who I don't know comes up to me, and she's really excited about our church, and she and her husband have recently found their way to our church, and she's describing all these things that are breaking open in their lives, all this healing that's happening in their lives, all these really good and beautiful things. And she's describing not just for her, but specifically for her husband. I mean, she is telling like an epic story of transformation in this guy's life. He's a different person. He's, he's alive to this thing. He's being walked home by this thing. So she's so excited about this. And after a little bit of this, and I'm excited with her, and it's really like affirming and encouraging. After a little bit of that, then she says, yeah, he wants to get baptized, but don't worry. I told him, no, he has a lot more work to do. And I thought, oh, no. And I thought like, no, we have a lot more work to do, you and I, right now. So we're going to talk for a bit, you know? And I, I just, like, reflected back to what I, here's, here's what I just heard. I heard that your husband uh, has, has this opening up happening within him, has this awareness growing within him, that he's um, responding to the good news of God's kingdom, that his, his life is open to the reality of, of God, that he, he is um, walking back from places you don't want him to be, to a place where you see him more, more flourishing and, and hopeful. You, you are seeing um, that as that happens, he's, some kind of goodness is growing in him. He's treating you differently, not, not forcing his way into it, but actually being transformed. Your marriage is different because of it. This sounds like good news through and through and through. And, and this good, like the operating system of this thing is not whether you've got it perfect. The operating system of this thing is invitation. It's, it's opening up. It's, it's um, leaving behind some of the baggage of the ways that we have failed, that our ignorance and unfaithfulness have shown themselves, and, and believing that, um, that God is with us as we walk forward. Like, you tell me that story about your husband, and I'm like, that's exactly what this moment is about. It's what it means for us. Um, there's a lot of imagery in baptism, a lot of different layers there. Some of it comes from Israel's history coming out of Egypt, but some of the imagery is, is that that in baptism we, we symbolize that, that we are dying with Christ. That, that those failures somehow go with us into that grave, but then they are left there. And that, that somehow in dying with Christ, we are raised with Christ, but those failures leave us behind. And I, if you read the, the scriptures closely, I don't think that's um, just sort of a, a one-moment transaction where everything before that moment's covered but like now you're on your own from that point on. Like that's not what's being described here. This is actually a way of being in the world, a way of relating to God, a pattern of dying and being raised up, of dying and being raised up, and slowly through that process becoming transformed. And so I, like I heard that moment, I just was so, um, like so sad um, at the ways that we all miss this and that we, we keep bringing our understanding back to it. We keep making it, 
something that we perform rather than something that we receive, something that we earn rather than something we are given. And I think of those words in Matthew that we looked at last week, like, um, are you, do you have a poverty within you? It's okay. God says, I, I am here to bless you in spite of that poverty. I'm here to give you the kingdom of God. Do you have a meekness about you? That means you can't take it for yourself. That's okay. I'm here to give you the inheritance of the world. Do you, are, are, are you mourning a loss that you couldn't hold on to for yourself? Something that you couldn't sustain anymore, even though you wanted to. He says, that's okay. You will be comforted. There's just this, this radical generosity in the, the giving of this kingdom that rewires us into a mode of receiving, not performing. And so um, if you relate with Peter, I would say like you're in good company. Welcome to the kingdom of God. That's precisely how this works. So, um, so we're doing baptisms in a couple of weeks. Uh, we sent an email out a couple of days ago, and um, if you want to, if, you, if, you, if that's something that you discern, like that's the moment that you're in, um, we're really excited just to share that with you. Uh, if you want to register, you can do that. The email has the ways that you can register, or you can just go to the website, and there's a, a blue banner that pops up on the bottom. You can click that. Uh, if you have questions, let us know. We'd love to talk more with you about what that means and how you can participate. Um, but before we go today, we just wanted to create a little more space to reflect. And so uh, we're going to invite uh, the crew back up. And um, again, this is uh, something that you can participate in as much as you feel like you'd like to. Um, but we'd like to create some space for uh, confession, which is not a word about beating ourselves up or, um, or any kind of sort of browbeating. Uh, this is a word for us of simply sort of finding the freedom to name our own moments of ignorance or unfaithfulness. And in doing so, like, we are like, we're, we're saying that we believe that's not the end of the story for us, that these don't have to exclude us, that they don't make us ineligible for the kindness of God. And so, uh, so Dan's going to lead us, and we'll, we'll pray, and we'll sing together for a bit more. Okay, so uh, next week is our last week before baptism, and we'll um, sort of feature in our gathering there Jesus' table and come together for communion. Uh, another word for that is Eucharist, which means thank you. It's a sort of gratitude feast for the welcome that we all find at Jesus' table. And so we're really looking forward to that. And it seems like the right thing to do on the way to baptism, um, to just remember the welcome that's there for every kind of person. So be here next week and be a part of that. And then, like I said, two weeks from now as baptism, you can sign up online or talk to one of us if you have some questions. And then uh, we end our gathering with these, these two other words that mean so much to us. And the, the way that we do this, the way that we say this, one of the reasons I, um, I cherish it so much is because uh, religious settings like this can tend to create pedestals out of uh, their leaders. And um, what I uh, am painfully aware of and really grateful for is like how much I need these words spoken into my life as much as I feel compelled to speak them into yours. And so we sort of um, offer this to one another like we do every week. So let's say it together today like we always do. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. Uh, see you very soon.